Um, I will speed it up next time and ensure that this doesn't happen. The last slide we were on, we were talking about the valveless. Sorry. We were talking about the valveless venous plexus of Batson, and we were saying there are two of them, and they're valveless. Um, they allow for communication of blood or anything else going up in the venous system up to a zygos veins and so on, which, will eventually, which eventually can make its way up to the dural sinuses where it can spread to the brain. We said that because of this valveless plexus of Batson, one of the first things you want to check whenever you suspect prostate cancer is for plain film x-ray of the vertebral columns to see if you have METs. That is clinically significant. We're moving on to more clinical anatomy where we're looking at lumbar punctures and how we do them. So by now, we are familiar with... Yes, brother. Oh, crap. I mean, oops. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do. We're back. Yay. So now we're moving on to the lumbar puncture, something I hope everyone has the opportunity to do, and I hope everyone you do turns out to be negative. Um, when we do the lumbar puncture, the first thing we want to do is make sure we, first we are going to make sure that area is aseptic. So we're going to clean that area, area out with some type of fluid. Um, secondly, we're going to anesthetize that area to ensure that we don't feel any pain when that needle begins to pierce. The needle is generally going to be inserted somewhere along the midline, provided that you have a bony defect or some type of lesion there preventing you from doing it. Um, the way we arrive at that point, that L4, L5 point where we're going to insert our needle, we're going to use our hands and place them on the, on the, um, on the, on the aces. We put our hands on the aces and we bring our thumbs back and wherever those thumbs meet, that's where L4 is. So you're basically putting your hands on the hips feeling for that bone, wherever those thumbs meet, that's your general region. We always try to hit that L4, L5 segment because the conus medullaris should end at about L2 for the most. And we know we have a dural sac which is going to extend all the way down to S2. So we have a room in there. Um, I remember being asked the question if you can do a lumbar puncture somewhere else. And you can. Because along the entire trajectory of the spinal cord, you have subarachnoid space. But the safest point to extract that fluid is in your dural sac. And that dural sac is going to be... Perfect place would be where you also miss the spinal cord. So somewhere around that L4, L5 region. The lumbar puncture consideration. Um, we're never going to do it whenever you have an, or you suspect an increase in intracranial pressure. So one of the things that you'll do before you actually do a lumbar puncture is do ocular fundoscopy where you took a, take a look at the retinal blood vessels to see if they have any changes. Um, you also won't do it if the patient is showing any signs of raised intracranial pressure where they have nausea and vomiting and so on. Now with the LP, like we said, the spinal cord should end at L2. At S2, our dural sac is going to be located, and that means our best location is L4, L5. Now, whenever we do it, we have the patient lie in lateral decubitus, either left or right. We have them adopt a fetal position. And what does that accomplish by asking them to adopt that fetal position? What opens up? 
the spinous processes. And by doing that, you are also going to stretch the supraspinous ligament and the interspinous ligament, making them a little bit easier to penetrate. Once we do that, we can then direct our needle into the sub or towards the subarachnoid space in a kephalad direction. And kephalad direction means you point the, head of the tip of the needle up towards the head because, again, your spinous processes are going to be angled downwards. In terms of the relationships of the needle to the structures that you'll be penetrating, first you'll be going through the skin, then the subcutaneous tissue. Immediately beneath that, you'll have a little thoracolumbar fascia. Once you penetrate that, we should come upon the supraspinous ligament, then the interspinous ligament, the ligamentum flavum, which is on the vertebral, on the vertebral arch, would be next. Once we penetrate the ligamentum flavum, flavum will be in the epidural space, which has the venous plexus of Batson. We have those um, segmental arteries, and we also have the spinal nerves with epidural fat. Beneath that will be the dura mater, which you are going to penetrate, the arachnoid mater. Then you'll be in the subarachnoid space, and then you're going to stop before you get to the pia. That direction or that, that type of um, insertion is called a median or a midline insertion. The other option is paramedian, going just off to the side. The two entry or the two, the two approaches are very similar with one exception. Because you're coming in from a lateralized direction, you are going to miss the supraspinous and most of the interspinous ligaments. So generally, if you go midline, you're going to hit everything on the way in. If you go paramedian, you miss the supraspinous and most of the inter interspinous ligaments. However, some cases you do get to touch the interspinous because it sort of broadens and fans out as you get to the lower parts of the lumbar region. But we're not cruel. We won't ask you questions on those little technicalities like that. Try this. Let's end this. Oops. Okay, just froze. What do I do? Repull. Let's see how to reset this thing. Pulling is closed for some reason. Okay. We already have one of your responses for attendance, so it's not a problem. We can do this one verbally. It's working? Hey, I don't know where the timer went, though, so. <laughs> Great. I'm expecting 100 on this. Now the timer. <laughs> okay, shall we start discussing this? Let's start by eliminating these answers. 28 days old, fairly new. Um, which are the answers we're going to eliminate first? E first, then A, possibly. A is gone. What else? 
How about L2, L3? Or L3, L4? Which one goes next? D's next, and then we're left with L3, L4. Let's see what our polling says. It says nothing. <laughs> um, oy, I'm not sure. Let's jump back a couple slides. Hmm? Is there A? So there we go. So we see most of us, we have gone with answer choice C. And according to that diagram we had up on screen before, that is probably the best answer that we have. Um, these are very similar to the questions that you'll see on your final exam. Um, expect them to come like that. The option choices are going to be extremely close um, because you are doing medicine after all. Um, so it's going to be a little bit challenging. That's the end of lecture one. We move on. Thank you. We move on to two. And this one, we're going to hit this one really hard. We're going to run through it like a ton of bricks. Just power through this one. Yay. Shall we continue? Got your notes out? Perfect. So again, a whole bunch of objectives as we see here. We will jump straight into the organization of the, spinal, of the nervous system. So now we're taking it a little bit further. We've looked at vertebral column and spinal cord, how it's set up, how it works, the different parts. Now how the nervous system itself works. So the nervous system is that part of, the, of human anatomy that basically controls our voluntary and involuntary actions. It transmits signals to and from different parts of our bodies. Um, we're going to have two, two large categories or two large components. One's the CNS or central nervous system and the other one is the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system is going to comprise of the brain and the spinal cord, whereas the peripheral nervous system will be all of those nerves that are going to be emanating from the brain stem, the spinal cord, and go to the different areas of the body. Cranial nerves are peripheral nerves, even though they don't come off of the spinal cord proper. Some of the terms that we'll be coming across in this would be things like somatic and visceral, ganglia, nucleus. Whenever we hear this, the term somatic, it means parietal. That, also, that means body wall. So we hear that, we think muscular structure, body wall structures, both motor and sensory. Visceral or splanchnic, that's synonymous. And whenever you hear those terms, you're thinking about organs, wherever you have an involuntary function. These are going to be generally located inside the body. Ganglion, that's a collection of nerve cell bodies located outside the CNS. If you recall in your previous lecture, you would have seen a structure called a dorsal root ganglion, which is where you have those cell bodies associated with the dorsal root. Now imagine all those little knobs, we had to put them or integrate them into the spinal cord itself. What would happen to the overall size of the spinal cord? It would get much bigger. What do you think would happen to the mobility of the spinal cord? It's going to decrease. Yeah? And as the mobility decreases and you have larger vertebrae, it means you have to have larger muscles to support them, more ligaments to support them. It's going to take a lot more energy and it's going to be an inefficient process. And on top of that, it's going to be impossible to break dance, you know, so. The creationist committee, by putting them outside, did us a huge favor. Now, the, nu the term nucleus represents a collection of nerve cell bodies located within the CNS. So whenever we find set nerve cell bodies within the brain, for example, we're going to call those nuclei, and we have several of them. Now, in terms of how the nervous system is going to be organized, we can have two categories. Again, we have an anatomical and anatomically, we divide it into CNS and PNS again. 
and a functional classification where you have a somatic nervous system and an autonomic nervous system, your SNS and ANS. These abbreviations you'll be seeing all over the place in the coming weeks. Now, the central nervous system functionally can be divided into two different categories. Again, you have the somatic nervous system from your CNS and your autonom autonomic ner nervous system. Similarly, your peripheral nervous system can be divided into an anatomic and a functional component as well. Now, generally, when we think about somatic structures, we are thinking about voluntary control to and from the skin. These, goes, these go to things like um, stri striated muscle or skeletal muscle and the joints and so on. When we think about our autonomics, we're talking about sympathetics and parasympathetics, and this gives involuntary control, involuntary motor control, to smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, and the various glands that we find in our body. Now, the sympathetics and parasympathetics... Um, these two tones will dictate how our body behaves, and they're also dictated by what's going on on the outside. So external stimuli can actually change which tone we have dominant. A tiger suddenly appears behind you. You go into fight or flight mode. Which system is that? Sympathetics. But when we're ready to sleep, or like now, we're in the lecture and we're relaxed, temperature's a little cool, blood pressure drops, your heart rate drops, what do we have? Peripheral. When we sleep, for example, what dominates? Very good, parasympathetics. As a result, um, whenever you have parasympathetic, parasympathetic tone being dominant, every organ system that is influenced by parasympathetics will be activated as well. So you'll notice that people, um, they're going, <laughs> they drool a little, the temperature goes, goes down, heart rate goes down, but aside from that, they pass gas because the bowels are still working, guys get erections, and similarly, while you're in here now, you're in these conditions where you're sort of sleepy, getting a little bit tired, same thing happens. But if a loud noise goes off, that tone immediately changes. The point of that sojourn was, whenever we have these two tones acting, they never act at the same time. One has to be dominant while the other one is passive. Um, you can't poo when you're scared, is the point to that. In terms of the external organization of the spinal cord, like we mentioned before, we have 31 pairs of those nerves with the eight cervical nerves running from C1 to C8. We have our 12 thoracics from T1 to T12, our five lumbar from L1 to L5, and your five sacral, S1 to S5, and your single or your unique coccygeal nerve. We said before, we end at L1, L2, at the conus medullaris, our cauda equina is then going to descend from there in the dural sac. That's where you're going to find your lumbar and sacral nerves exiting. And the dural sac ends at S2. Back to the organization of the spinal cord again. That cord is going to be made up of those two tissue types, gray and white matter. White matter on the outside, gray matter on the inside. It is the exact opposite to what we see in the brain, where we have gray matter on the inside and white matter on the outside of it. We'll just remind you of the different parts of that gray matter. We can see from that butterfly shape, the larger, more blunt, anteriorly located portion is your ventral horn. The tapered portion that projects posteriorly is your dorsal or posterior horn. And laterally, those triangular fields we see extending into the lateral columns are going to be called your lateral horns, where you have your sympathetic, your sympathetic column. 
Our meninges, like before, we have our dura on the outside, pee on the inside, and arachnoid in the middle of both of them. Now, once that spinal cord is formed, the next objective is to form a spinal nerve. Now, the spinal nerves don't just arise directly off of the spinal cord.、Um, let's say one of them breaks, for example, it means the entire nerve is broken. But by having several of these little rootlets that are going to merge, you can break one and you still have enough innervation to keep things going. So, again, efficiency of biology. So, we go from roots, rootlets sorry, into roots to m i x spinal nerve, which will give us our ventral and dorsal rami. So, what we see attached over here, these are our rootlets. And because they're associated with the ventral horn, these are called ventral rootlets. They eventually become the ventral root. Over here, we have our dorsal rootlets, which, mer which merge and meet our dorsal root ganglion. And that's where you have the dorsal root itself. From your dorsal root onwards, this is where you have your mixed spinal nerve. And your mixed spinal nerve is a very, very short segment. That mixed spinal nerve is then going to quickly divide into a dorsal and ventral ramus.、Um, Associated with it in those segments, wherever we have the gray column or the lateral column, we're going to see gray and white rami communicants. These spinal nerves, once formed, have to exit and make their way to peripheral tissue. And they accomplish that by passing through the intervertebral foramen, also called neural foramina. You will see them abbreviated as IV foramina in your textbook or in your lab material and so on. So, these foramen are going to be formed between the two vertebrae, for example, superior and inferior verte vertebrae.、Um, you have these tiny notches, and when the two vertebrae meet, those notches form the foramen where they pass.、Um, these are present at every, at every level, and every pair of spinal nerves has to pass through one of these to make its way out to the tissue.、Um, effectively, just on the outside of that foramen is where we should see. The dorsal root ganglion.、Um, entering should be a segmental artery at that point. Leaving should be a branch of the internal venous plexus. Now, the spinal, mixed spinal nerve once formed and it gives our ventral and dorsal ramus. These two rami are,、um, rami, sorry. These two rami are going to be directed ventrally and dorsally, as the name suggests. The ventral rami、um, are generally the larger. Um, we'll explain why a little later on. The dorsal rami, they're going to move immediately posterior,、um, where they're going to supply the deep muscles of the back and the skin on the back. The ventral rami travel anteriorly and they'll eventually form plexi or plexuses, which will, which will innervate the different segments of our bodies. Generally, the ventral rami are going to supply. All of the other muscles except the back muscles and all of the other skin over the air or covering those muscles which aren't the back. The sympathetic chain is going to run down the entire length of the vertebral column. So, for every vertebral level we see, we're going to be seeing sympathetic chain. But we only see the, the lateral columns somewhere between 17 spinal segments. In terms of the sympathetic chain itself, It's going to be comprised of about 22 to 23 different pairs of these ganglia. In the, in the cervical region, you have three of them which can be fused. In the thoracic region, you have 11. And in the lumbar region, you have four, and about four to five in the sacral segment. So their numbers are going to vary. 
But whenever you look at a gross specimen, you're going to see these little dots lining both lateral aspects of the vertebral column making their way down. In terms of when they exit those vertebral foramina, um, the way they leave will be dictated by the amount of vertebrae you have, the characteristics of those vertebrae, and their locations. The C1 nerve is going to exit between the skull and the first vertebra. Beneath that, you're going to have C2 exiting. So basically, in the, in the cervical segments, the spinal nerve is going to exit above its corresponding vertebra. Similarly, C2 to C7 is going to exit as well. So the nerve we're going to find on top of C3, on the C3 vertebra will be C3. The one on top of C4 will be C4. As we move down and we get to T1, things change a little bit. Why do things change once we get to T1? We have a C8. So what our brother was saying was we, have only, we only have seven cervical vertebrae, but we have eight spine, pairs of spinal nerves. So as a result, there's going to be a transition in naming those segments. So C8 is now going to exit above T1, and all of the thoracic vertebrae are going to exit below their corresponding vertebral number. So T3 will exit below T3, and so on. And that will continue until we get down to the, to the lumbar segments. So again, we have that transition in naming between our C8 and T1. We all clear with that? Beautiful. Again, over here, this is another a great diagram from it. Again, stolen from Netters. So you'll be able to find this in your textbook. So we can see how these actually change. You'll notice in the cervical segments, because they exit above their corresponding vertebrae, we can see... Right? <laughs> yeah, we can see they have a general, they're generally more horizontalized. But as we descend and the height of the vertebral body increases as we move down the column, you'll notice that they tend to have a more oblique path. And when we get down into the lumbar segments, you'll notice that when they exit, they have to exit and travel across the body of the vertebrae to make their way out. This is going to be particularly um, significant when we're looking at herniations of the IV discs later on. So now in the lumbar region, which is where we were just talking about, you'll notice that we have corresponding vertebrae and corresponding nerves. So now, because of that transition from the T1 segment, it's going to influence how all of those nerves exit afterwards. So you'll notice with the L3 over here, where we have our L3 pedicle over here, we can see our nerve exiting along the body of the L3, and eventually it makes its way out obliquely. So let's say, for example, we have herniation occurring somewhere between L3 and L4. The nerve that is likely affected is going to be your L4 nerve, yeah? Because this one passes just above and it's spared. However, that L4, which is exiting, is right in the path of that herniating nucleus pulposus. Something to bear in mind later on, maybe when you have an IMCQ session. Here's a cool schematic of what actually happens whenever we have these spinal nerves being formed. We have a dorsal horn, which is where we have all our sensory input. Ventral horn, which, we, which is where we have our motor output. These can be described as afferent and efferent signals respect, respectfully. Afferent going back to the spinal cord, efferent leaving the spinal cord. And we have our lateral motor horns. We have our dorsal root, 
or ventral root. And just like the ventral horns, these are going to be motor and sensory as well. The dorsal root ganglion, which is a sensory structure. Here we have our cell bodies located. That tiny segment is your spinal nerve. So from the point where our dorsal and ventral roots meet to where we have our dorsal and ventral rami leaving, that little segment is the mixed spinal nerve. Very, very small. Click too early. <laughs> so we're sending a motor signal from our ventral horn and it's traveling along the ventral root. We're receiving an afferent signal or a sensory signal is going to travel along the dorsal root. It travels through the dorsal root ganglion where it does not synapse and makes its way to the dorsal column. Now your gray and white rami communicants are where your sympathetics are going to interact with your mixed spinal nerves. These are going to leave the lateral horn, travel towards your white rami communicants, then it makes its way to the sympathetic chain ganglia where it's going to return via the gray rami communicants from there, it can leave either your dorsal ramus or ventral ramus dependent on where you need that sympathetic input. So it can go to smooth muscle in the back, it will travel via dorsal rami. If it goes to, let's say, smooth muscle in the front, it's going to go to the ventral ramus. Now we're looking at somatic efferents, specifically, so just motor signals. So from motor neuroblasts that are located from the basal plate of the intermediate layer, these are going to form your motor neurons. From these motor neurons, the signals are going to extend out through the ventral ramus, eventually making its way to the muscles of the back, or muscles of the body, wall, and limb, if it goes through the, um, sorry, it should have been. It goes to muscles of the back via the ventral ramus, or ventral root, sorry. It goes through ventral root first, and from there, it can lead to dorsal ramus where it goes to the back or ventral ramus where it goes to the front. So from root into ramus, that's the general transition. So if the signal leaves and it continues anteriorly along your ventral ramus over here, it is likely going to muscles of the body wall or your limbs, either upper and lower limbs. If it's going to the dorsal one, it's going towards the back at some point, so maybe to the erector spiny muscles. Over here, we're looking at rami communicants. And these rami communicants, um, these are basically communica communicating branches between the spinal cord and your sympathetic chain. The, brief, the, the description, gray and white, simply describes which one's myelinated and which one's unmyelinated. I'll let you stab a guess at that one. Which one's myelinated? The white ones. If you had to guess which one would be slightly larger, which one would you say? White, they have an electromyelin on them. So sometimes on gross, you can actually tell them apart based on the size and not necessarily the location. Um, basically, the gray and white rami communicants are going to be responsible for conveying autonomic signals specifically for the sympathetic nervous system to their target organs. Um, again, and the only difference between them would be that coloration that they have. The gray rami communicants are going to exit at every single level of the spinal cord and they're going to be responsible for carrying what's described as postganglionic nerve fibers, meaning once they would have, they would have synapsed at the sympathetic chain ganglia. Um, the white rami communicants, they're only going to exist at levels of the spinal cord where the intermediolateral cell column is present. So only in the areas where we have the IML, 
somewhere between T1 and L2 is where we're going to find our white rami communicants. But at every single level of the spinal cord, we have gray rami communicants. Are we all clear with that message? Excellent. Should I repeat that? Okay. Somebody say so. Come on, guys. All right, just say it. So back to that again. Gray rami communicants. Everywhere you have a sympathetic chain, um, sympathetic chain ganglia, i.e. at every spinal, spinal segment or every spinal level, you find gray rami communicants. The white rami communicants, you only find them where you have your lateral horn or your intermediolateral horn, which is located somewhere between T1 and L2. Yeah? And those white rami communicants, in contrast to the gray ones which were carrying postganglionic, the white ones carry preganglionic signals. So they're going to get to the ganglion before they synapse, and what leaves will be the gray rami communicants. So let's say we're trying to send some signals to sweat glands or smooth muscle, vascular smooth muscle, or hair follicles on the back or somewhere. So first, we leave our signal leaves the lateral column, travels across the ventral ramus. Why would it travel? Oops. Why would it travel across the ventral ramus? What type of signal did we say those sympathetics were? Motor. So it has to travel through the ventral ramus. Goes through your ventral ramus. From there, it's going to jump down, get to your ganglion, synapse. From there, it's going to be postganglionic signals. It's going to travel back to your mixed spinal nerve and eventually make its way to target organs. Let's say we're looking at skin of the back or skin of the body wall and limbs. So we have sensory signals coming from the body or the back, making its way through dorsal and ventral rami. But eventually, because it's a sensory signal, which route is it going to take, dorsal or ventral? Dorsal. So it goes through that dorsal root, passes through the dorsal root ganglion, and eventually makes its way into the dorsal horn, where it's going to be sent to the brain for processing afterwards. Here we go again, another one. So now we're looking at skin and intrinsic muscles of the back plus sympathetics. We're dealing with just the back now. So sensory comes in via your, because we're dealing with the back and we're looking at dorsal ramus, it's going to go through your dorsal root, pass through the dorsal root ganglion, into your dorsal rootlets and so on until it gets to the dorsal horn. Motor signals are going to leave your, your ventral horn, pass through the ventral root, and from there it's going to go through the dorsal ramus where it's going to make its way through the back. This can be a little confusing at first because we've been throwing dorsal and ventral around like, you know, all over the place. But basically, once that mixed spinal nerve is formed, you're going to get two primary branches coming off of it. One which is heading to the ventral part of the body and the limbs, and the other one which is heading to the back. So any signals going to the back or coming from the back has to first pass through that dorsal ramus. Yeah? Once it's coming in, it has to pass through that dorsal ramus. If it's going out, it has to pass through there. Now, depending on if that signal is motor or sensory, it's going to pass through either your ventral or dorsal root. So, um, so even though we're going to the back, a motor signal passes through our ventral root, eventually makes its way to the mixed spinal nerve where it gets to the dorsal ramus, then gets to the back. A sensory signal coming in is going to pass through the dorsal ramus, make its way through the dorsal root, and eventually the dorsal column. Do we understand it? 
I'm hearing silence. That means no. What do you need me to repeat? Tell me. Everything. Oh, God. Um, <clears throat> trying to think of a way to make this a little bit easier. Um, maybe as we move on. We'll see. So again, the second diagram was showing skin and, mu uh, skin and muscles of the body wall and limbs. If we're dealing with bo body wall and limbs, how do those signals exit? Through ventral ramus or dorsal ramus? Ventral ramus. So to get to ventral ramus, you're going to have them leaving the, the motor signals, leave the motor horn, pass through ventral roots, they eventually get to mixed spinal nerve, they go to ventral ramus, they do the front. If they were going to the back, and their motor signals. They're still going to pass through the ventral root, but when they get to the mixed spinal nerve, where do they go next? Dorsal ramus. So the, project, the progression, rootlets to roots, and then from there we have our mixed spinal nerve, and from there we have our ventral and dorsal rami. This is fairly simple. Um, I suggest we try not to overcomplicate it. We can, we can look too deep into it. Dermatomes. A dermatome is an area of the skin that is innervated by a single spinal nerve. One of the curiosities is C1 has no dermatome as it exits between C1 and the base of the skull. In the thorax and in the abdomen, the dermatomal distribution is more or less regular where it's stacked like coins according to the authors of Grace. They, they look more like cookies in my opinion. So they're stacked kind of like cookies or coins and they're very, very regular in those segments. However, between dermatomes, you have several filaments of these nerves extending into, into spinal levels above and below the level of that dermatome. So, for example, a T3 dermatome, um, a T3 dermatome is going to send fibers up to T2, fibers down to T4, so it covers, so it has double redundancies. So the likelihood of injury is extremely low. Now, generally, those dermatomes will be provided by those dorsal rami, which will be doing the back. And again, you know those dorsal rami exit at every level of the spinal cord. Your ventral rami, the same. You'll find those in a similar order. And because of the overlap, you'll have the dermatome innervating the segment above and the segment below. We'll illustrate that a little bit better a little later on. Some of the key dermatomes that you need to learn when we look at our cervical spine, um, we'll notice that from C1 to C7, for example, it will correspond with the up, upper aspects of the vertebral bodies. Sensation of C7 nerve is for the middle finger. Um, C8 and lower spinal nerve roots will leave below the corresponding vertebral body. That's where you have that transition. T4 is at the nipple line. That's a very important um, dermatome as well. You have T7 at the xiphoid process, and these are some of the ones that we want you to remember. As you go a little bit lower down, you'll notice that the dermatomal distribution changes because of changes that would have occurred when you had limb development. So that's from the second you leave the abdomen, you lose that nice stacked arrangement and you switch to something that sort of wraps around or spirals around the lower limb. We're taking a look at the T6 dermatome now. That T6 dermatome is going to send fibers which extends above and below its spinal level. Now, if we look at T5, T5 is going to do basically the same thing as well. It's going to send its fibers above and below T5. 
So eventually, even though we knock out, let's say, one dermatome, the patient will not be able to perceive any loss of sensation. When would loss of sensation occur with a dermatome? When you knock out two or more. I'm going to assume that is what was mumbled in the background. So let's say we knock two more of those out. That's when you have anesthesia in that area, and that's when you have loss of sensation. So to lose sensation, you have to lose two or more dermatomal segments. Are we clear with that? Sweet. That little chart over there has some of the important dermatoma levels that we want you to remember. And again, I'll ask you to make note of um, T7 being the level of the xiphoid process. That's the only one I see missing there. But all the rest of them there, and they all, all seem to be accurate. Um, this, these images you can find on your Elsevier, so you can go use your codes, scratch out the code at the back of the book, and you can find all of those online. Or you can just use the lecture notes. So some of the really important ones, if you look at C5, that's going to be around the clavicles. T4, we said, was the nipple line. T10, super important, the level of the umbilicus. Um, generally, when we look at C6, C7, C8, it's going to be where the hand is. Yes? T7, the xiphoid process. So that's the level where you have the xiphoid process. That's the only one I didn't see there. And that's the only one that isn't represented very accurately on this. If you look at it, it's... Uh, but T7, xiphoid process. Myotomes are similar to dermatomes. We defined dermatomes as area of the skin, which is innervated by a single spinal nerve. How would you define myotomes? Regions of skeletal muscle that are innervated by a single spinal nerve. The distribution of dermatomes and myotomes are pretty similar if you look at them when you compare them. Because again, this, the mixed spinal nerve is going to exit at every single level of the spinal cord, so we expect them to sort of correspond. But they're not exactly mirror images of each other. Now, myotome testing, this, knowing this becomes important when you're doing, and knowing dermatomes, it's important when you're doing neurological testing. Um, like for now, it doesn't change the price of rice in China, right? if you know this or you don't know it, but when you practice, it can, quick, it can make you arrive at diagnosis really, really quickly. For example, when we test musculotendinous reflexes, effectively we're testing dermatomes and myotomes. We tap on the knee and we get that knee-jerk reflex. What does that tell us? That that segment of the spinal cord is undamaged and intact. Musculotendinous reflexes occur independent of the brain and their reflex centers are located within the spinal cord. So in fact, the best, the best response you could get is from someone who has no upper motor neuron input. Someone in a coma, for example. You ever seen those movies where somebody accidentally drops the tray on the body and the leg goes flying off? That can actually happen. In the moments immediately post-mortem, patient just dies. You tap the knee, knee's going to go flying. So if you know the different levels for our dermatomes and myotomes, it can make life easy. And I heard some kids in neuroscience doing this one, two, buckle my shoe. L3, L4, kick the door. Five, six, pick up sticks. Seven, eight, lay them straight. So if you figure out, if you, let's say we do a bicep reset um, reflex and we notice the bicep reflex is gone, it means somewhere around five, six, we have lost that spinal nerve. The next thing we do is we test where we have the C5 dermatome, which we said was a clavicle. And all we do, we use pinprick testing or cutaneous sensation. We test for cutaneous sensation, and if, it got, if it's gone, it means it's likely that that level of the spinal cord is affected. 
so we can quickly figure things out if we know this. Yeah? So we'll try to learn them. It might help in the exam. Now, things inevitably go wrong and people get sick all the time, and now we're going to talk about something called shingles, a.k.a. herpes zoster, a.k.a. zona. It's a viral disease, and it's characterized as by this really painful skin rash. Um, this rash usually occurs with blisters on it, and it, it, evolve, it is usually limited to one area. Um, whenever the nerves are affected, the condition is called post-herpetic neuralgia. So what happens is, let's say we get infected, let's say with varicella zoster, for example. We get chickenpox or something. Our body may not have been able to clear all of the virus, but the virus goes and it hides in the dorsal root ganglia associated with the dorsal root of these spinal nerves. Whenever we have conditions where our body becomes immunocompromised, whether from stress or age or partying too hard, these viruses now have conditions where they can suddenly flare up. And when it flares up, it is first going to infect the nerve. Now, from what we just learned about dermatomes, we know that dermatomes aren't limited to their dermatomal level. What do they do? They go one level above, one be level below. So as a result, even though we may have, let's say, T9 being affected, it's going to also have affectation or it's going to also affect the levels above and below T9 as well, which is why that lesion is usually so painful because it feels like a large area is affected. Now, in terms of what happens when these spinal nerves eventually meet at some point, um, you know, it's kind of like when you have a family, you know, you have a bunch of kids, they leave, and when they get back together, there's a huge reunion where a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> what happens when they meet are somatic plexuses. Now, somatic plexuses are going to be a network of nerves derived totally or completely from ventral rami of spinal nerves. Um, these are going to innervate skeletal or striated muscle where they give voluntary control to those. Um, they also innervate joints by giving sensory fibers where you have proprioceptive fibers coming in. They also innervate the skin for pain and temperature. So somatic plexuses, for example, your brachial plexus, your lumbar plexus, are all formed from ventral rami. And if you remember from those schematics that we saw, those drawings that we saw, the ventral rami always looked larger, meaning there is always more input from those or output. Now, a visceral plexus is going to carry autonomics, and it's going to be strictly involuntary. So we'll see visceral plexuses located around the large blood vessels in the, in the intermediate abdomen. We'll see them down in, inside of the pelvis as well. They also carry sensory fibers back as well. So even though we have autonomic fibers um, going there, and, and sympathetics, for example, um, leaves or carries motor on the way back, certain sensory fibers are going to travel with parasympathetics and sympathetics. The general rule, um, parasympathetics will take physiological impulses from an organ back to the CNS. So the signals that tell us um, that the rectal vault or, is full, those will be traveling with the parasympathetics. Those are physiological. It tells us if the organ is stretching, if it's empty, if it's full, if there's something in it. Um, visceral pain is going to travel with sympathetics. So that general rule you can write down and remember it. Pain, visceral pain with sympathetics, physiological sensations with parasympathetics. Now, our nerve plexus itself will form after these plexuses are formed, and these can be aggregates of nerve fibers and nerve cell bodies. A somatic nerve plexus is going to be a network of nerve fibers derived from ventral rami of spinal nerves, 
Somatic nerves, therefore, are going to contain somatic ner nerve fibers, sympathetic fibers destined for the body wall and the limbs. Now, with your somatic plexuses, we have a couple of them that we have listed here for you, and their spinal segments. So we see our brachial plexus from C5 to T1, lumbar from L1 to L4, and our sacral plexus in our sacral segments. And as we know, brachial plexus is going to control the upper limbs, lumbar um, plexus, lower limbs. It's also going to send some fibers into the pelvis and sacral as well. So these are your plexuses. And a couple things to remember. Most of your named nerves are going to come from a plexus. Like anything in the upper limb, if we look at median, ulnar, radial, they're from brachial plexus. That means they are all formed from ventral rami of spinal nerves somewhere between C5 and T1. That's the end of the second one, guys. Let's take a break, come back. If you're tired, I understand. Yeah, brother, go ahead. Man.